0: This is the first talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues. It's titled "Courage," recorded November 12, nineteen ninety-five, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right, um, I thought I'd start a new a little program here that uh, every uh, the, the second Sunday of the month, the first Sunday after our video, I would give a talk for the next seven months on one of the seven virtues. Uh, at, uh, there are many, of course, virtues on the spiritual path, but uh, at the center we sort of ch- try to narrow them down to seven and they uh, hopefully they're all inclusive. Uh, courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. So I thought for seven months here, I'd, at least once a month, hopefully on the, as I said, the second Sunday of the month, I'll talk about one of these virtues. We'll have a, a virtue of the month, so to speak. So uh, we'll start with the first virtue, uh, courage. And the spiritual uh, path is really a journey. It's uh, it's primarily an inward, inward journey, although it may take you outwards to various places. But like any journey, it requires courage. But what is courage? It's actually, courage is quite hard to actually define, to pinpoint. Uh, One of the most famous uh, treaties on it is contained in a dialogue that Plato wrote uh, (coughs) called Laches. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's a Greek term. And in the dialogue, um, this uh, character Lysimachus, uh, he's got a son, and he's concerned about how to raise him properly. This is, of course, in ancient Athens. And so he goes to consult these two generals, uh, Nicias and Laches, and Socrates happens to be around. And, of course, whenever Socrates is around, you know they're going to get into a, a good discussion there. And so they start talking about uh, courage, because uh, everybody agrees uh, that courage is very necessary for uh, the son. But then they start saying, well, what is courage? And then as the dialogue progresses, each of the generals gives their view of what courage is. And, of course, Socrates, as he always does, uh, starts digging into their definitions, and he unravels them, and he and he convinces them they don't know what they're talking about. And there are several arguments back and forth and attempts to give a definition, but it boils down to this. Uh, and this is phrased in military terms, but you could think of it in anything in life. Uh, if you were a general, and if you attack... A vastly superior force let 's say you 've got a, a little squad and you go attack a division uh, that 's not courage that 's stupidity it 's foolishness. You may sacrifice your life and all that, but if you just up and attack this force nobody nobody would praise you for being courageous they 'd all say that was a pretty stupid thing to do. <laughs> Unless you're Hmm? Unless you win. Unless you win. Very good. If, uh, by some stroke of luck you won, you would get the medal of honor, whatever the equivalent was in Athenian society. Uh, but on the other hand, if you attack a, a obviously inferior force with an overwhelming superior force, there's no courage in that either because you know, you're going to win. There's certainty in there. Um, so, uh, people don't say that that's courageous. So, there are these two extremes. If you do something and you have absolute confidence, absolute certainty, you know how it's going to work out, it doesn't require any courage. But if you do something uh, just completely recklessly, without taking any uh, consideration of the consequences or anything, it's just stupid. So, we could say that uh, courage lies between Uh, somewhere between stupidity and and wisdom or certainty. And in fact, in this uh, particular dialogue, uh, Socrates and these generals, they all decide they can't answer the problem. And uh, it's one of the few dialogues where there's no resolution. They all go off to talk to somebody else and we don't know what what happens. But you see, that's really Socrates' job. He's not to answer questions for you. He's to undermine the, the things that you hold to be so true. And if you read through the dialogues, that's really his whole, whole approach. And that's why, by the way, Plato is, uh, that is Plato's uh spiritual practice. Whatever you think is true, he's going to come along and uh, question it. And what he really wants you to do is teach you how to question, uh, how to really question uh, all your beliefs and so forth. In any case, courage is a <laughs> funny quality. It falls somewhere between being absolutely reckless and stupid and acting out of an absolute certainty, which doesn't require courage at that point. Rumi, the great Sufi poet, compares this situation to a merchant uh, about to set sail with his goods on a ship. And he says, When you place your goods on a ship, you do not know which of the two you will be, drowned on the voyage or one of the saved. You cannot say, Until I know which I am, I will not hurry to the ship in the sea. Reveal to me uh, to which group I belong. I will not go out on this journey in doubt and with empty hopes like so many others. If you say this, you will not accomplish any trading, since the mystery of these two possibilities lies hidden in the unseen. A fearful and weak-hearted merchant will gain neither profit nor loss." only the fire eater will find the light so he's he's of course comparing this to uh the spiritual path to this journey a merchant's going to make if you're so afraid you won't set out in this in this journey uh, unless you're certain that it's going to be successful that you're going to arrive at your, safely at the harbor uh you won't go on the journey and likewise uh you'll never really go on a spiritual path so we could say courage is a willingness to take risk in the face of fear. If there's no fear arising from a subjective point of view, there's no need for courage. If you're overwhelmed by fear and paralyzed, then you don't have any courage. So courage is this willingness to take risks, to to move ahead, to take action in the face of fear. Now, this is very important. Courage is not the absence of fear. And courage is not about suppressing fear or getting rid of fear. If there's no fear there present, there's no courage. The virtue doesn't mean anything. And a lot of people, when they feel fear coming, they become afraid of the fear, and they try to do something about the fear before they move on. And truly speaking, uh, any uh, soldier will tell you, and I speak from experience, that fear is your greatest ally. <clears throat> Once you get over the fear of being afraid, in a physical sense, fear uh, literally releases um, adrenaline into your system. It makes your body strong. It makes your mind sharp. It clears your mind. It, uh, your mind gets so clear in combat. There's not one uh, extraneous distracting thought. Totally focused on what's going on. And the thought is reduced to absolute minimum, only what's necessary. Maybe some of you have been in a situation, uh, not combat, but a situation of like a, a car wreck or some uh, physical emergency. And you know that sense how the mind gets very clear. You watch your body going through the motions very efficiently, doing what you have to do. You have this strength, this aliveness. Has anybody experienced that? Yeah. Experience. Yeah. Hmm? Call it peak experience. A peak, yes. Uh, yes. And but I'm talking about one generated specifically out of fear, where mm-hmm. there's some crisis and the fear rushes through you. If you focus on the fear as something negative, you will freeze. But if you allow the fear to be and to recognize it, it's just a change of perception as your ally. Then that's what helps you uh to go forward in that situation, and go forward with, often, a strength and a clarity that you don't normally have. So, a tentative definition, I won't try to uh compete with Socrates, but a tentative one, uh, a working definition, we could say is, willingness to take a risk in the face of fear. Okay, but why then is uh courage the first virtue? Well, from the very, very beginning, For most people, it's the virtue that's required first on a spiritual path, before any of the other virtues come into play even, humility or gratitude or mercy or any of those things. In delusion, in a life of delusion, and if you examine your life, you'll see this, we spend uh, all our time trying to avoid what we're afraid of, to escape reality the reality of the situations that develop that we don't like. A spiritual path means turning around and facing reality. It is one of the most essential uh, uh, teachings of a spiritual path and it's a very good thing to remember. It's not just some philosophical teaching. Whenever you're in a situation where you feel uh, that you don't like the situation, it's, it's creating fear and anxiety in you and so forth, and you get that impulse to uh, flee you know, that biological impulse almost, you know, what's that the saying they have, uh, fight flight, or flight, yeah. fight or flight. Don't flee and don't fight. It's the middle road here. Facing reality doesn't mean either fleeing or fighting. It, it, the first thing is to th- look at it squarely, accept it. This is what is here now in my life. Only when that happens can there be any intelligent, wise, or compassionate response to the situation. It doesn't mean that ultimately you might, you might want to flee or you might want to fight, but it's to, you first have to really face the situation. You have to accept the fact this is what's here. Then there's uh, room for uh, wisdom to come into play and whatever the response is, it will depend on where you're at and so forth. So a spiritual path is turning away from this, uh, this tendency to, to escape and turning away from uh, this deluded, escapist world we create for ourselves where everything is going to be all right and so forth, and looking at actually what is going on, facing reality in the moment, facing the reality of our lives in the moment, but also facing the reality of our lives uh, as human beings embodied. And that reality is impermanence, suffering, old age, serious sickness, accident or whatever, and ultimately death. This is nothing uh, heroic about the situation. This is everybody's situation, everybody's situation. It's not like you can look over to your neighbor and say, oh, how heroic she is. She's facing suffering, old age, disease, and death. If you do, you're in a a, a state of serious denial. We're all in that situation. So courage is needed just to face life, ordinary life, the way it is. In our culture, particularly, uh, this is very difficult for a lot of people, because our culture itself is in a state of uh, total denial about these things, and you can see this, just turn on your television set and see what the appeal is of 90% of the advertising. Security, whether it's financial security, medical security, you know, they, they have these People, uh, striding up these abstract stairs and, in, uh, in, uh, in great office buildings carrying briefcases, briefcases going to attain financial security and so <laughs> forth, medical plans and so forth, you know. It's, uh, preventing old age, get rid of those wrinkles and dye your hair and your mustache and your beard and all that and look <laughs> 20 years younger again, you know. It's all about, uh, a denial of what, human biological life is. In our culture particularly, this is going really against the grain. Other cultures have certain rites and rituals designed to remind us of the impermanence of life. And uh, and in many cultures, they have something equivalent of the Day of the Dead. In Mexico, they've had the the Day of the Dead. And it's a day where you you look at death, you you celebrate death, you, you accept death, you know, instead of trying to cover it up. So, as you journey on a spiritual path as you set off from shore as rumi says and you, the first thing is you need the courage just to set off just to leave shore uh but as you go uh farther and farther you'll be confronted with different aspects of reality at different stages of your path so this morning i want to talk about some of the uh some of these aspects of reality that surface during the course of a spiritual journey and the fears that uh, uh, most seekers will have to face, and, and why we need courage to face these particular kinds of uh, situations. Here's Lali Shori, she was a great uh, Kashmir saint of the 14th century, and she's talking about the beginning of her path. She says, Where have I come from? What road have I traveled? Which way am I going? I don't know the way, yet here I stand, with courage and determination, hoping to grasp the knowledge of truth. And you can see right in here this willingness to be with the unknown. Who am I? Where am I going? Where did I come from? All those great classic questions that human beings have asked from, from the very beginning. Most people go on a spiritual path because they come to some impasse in, uh, on a worldly path. You know, there's everybody seeking happiness, and, and most people are seeking happiness through worldly means and so forth. Uh, as on TV, they follow all advice, they try for financial security and uh, the creams and the dyes and all that. And at some point, and it happens different people at different times in life, people uh, start to realize this is not going to bring me ultimate happiness. Uh, sometimes it's a slow process. A process of exhaustion. That was very much the case with myself. That you are working harder and harder and harder to attain, and it's not happening. And you realize you're getting older, and it doesn't matter how much money you get, you're never going to be happy this way. Sometimes it comes through a crisis. Sometimes a medical crisis uh, is often a big catalyst to sending someone on a spiritual path. Here they are have attained all the security they think and uh don't think about death and are in good health and all that and suddenly boom something happens to them and it suddenly presents them starkly with the reality of human life. So right away you're confronted on a spiritual path with the need for change. Change the way you've been doing things. And if you're not willing, like Lolly to question your old ideas, your old attitudes, your old ways of doing things, your old assumptions about what reality, where you came from, where you're going, and so forth. You cannot even get out of port. You can't even begin the journey. So then, here you are, you're starting to change, you're starting to question your life, you're starting to change a little bit. And the next fear that comes up for most people is the fear of isolation, and there are two parts of this. One is, what, are, what other people are going to think of me? Because as your interests change, as you start getting interested in the spiritual path, you'll start going off to places like this, hearing teachings, maybe joining a meditation group, I don't know what, you know, your friends and your relatives are going to say, what's the matter with you? You know, oh, you're a little depressed, you should go into therapy or something, you know. <laughs> or, ah, some Valium, I've been taking this Valium, it's great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to start thinking you're a little weird, really. And depending on who your friends and, uh, and relatives are, I mean, if they're more liberal and loose and, and perhaps themselves already have some spiritual interests, it won't be so bad for you. But if not, uh, there can be a tremendous manner of resistance and even a, a kind of a shunning, you know. People stop wanting to have anything to do with you in extreme cases. We have a, a, a video here in the library um, about this American monk in Thailand. Do you remember the, the title of it? Um, I think it's just I Am a Monk. I Am a Monk. Do you remember the, his name? Michael. Michael. We don't know his last name. Michael. It's a, it's a wonderful little video. It's a very interesting to see, you know, get a glimpse of the experience of an American being a monk in Thailand and, Putting on the robes and going around with begging bowl, just like the rest of the monks, but he talks about coming home and his family, and his family just does not understand them at all, do you know. And he talks about the isolation he feels and the uh, the pain that causes and so forth. Often we are afraid, and this is certainly true of me on a spiritual path, to talk about uh, what's going on with uh, uh, family and friends who aren't on a spiritual path because we know they're going to think we're weird. Part of that's not all selfish fear. Part of it is a sense of not wanting to upset people or offend people. I think a good rule of thumb, someone told me that one person I could discuss this with was this woman, Samantha. If you read my book, you will recognize the name. And she said, well, she said, um, I don't speak about my spiritual interests. I don't go out and uh you know, just announce them to everybody. But if somebody really asks me and we get into a conversation, yes, I say what I'm interested in, what I'm doing. And if they don't like it, well, then, then they're not for me, you know. And it's a very good way to handle this fear, to have, not to go out and proselytize and be obnoxious like some people are when they join a new spiritual group, they try to convince everybody to go on their path or whatever but in a skillful way to let your family and friends know what's going on. Otherwise, you'll spend your time creating and maintaining a front that's not really you. And your friends and family are responding to that, and your the real relationship is just drawing up. If they really can't stand the fact you're on a spiritual path, fine. You won't be friends with them. That's okay. You'll find friends, ultimately, who are will respond, will understand. Then the path also calls for... Uh, a different kind of isolation, solitude. Anybody who's going to go on a spiritual path and to get anywhere on a spiritual path is going to have to spend time with themselves in solitude. Whether you're going off in retreats or just in your own home making time with yourself or going for walks. Here's George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, and he <laughs> writes about his spiritual path, the early part. He says, I fasted much and walked abroad in solitary places many days and often took my Bible and went and sat in the hollow trees and lonesome places till night came on and frequently in the night walked mournfully about by myself for I was a man of sorrows in the times of the first workings of the Lord in me. This is what shamans do. They go out into the woods and, and find hollows of trees to sit in and walk about and spend time with themselves alone, away from the uh, community, which is always reinforcing your, your uh, social persona, who you, the community thinks you are. To be alone with yourself, for many people, this is quite frightening. And for everybody, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Because when you're alone with yourself, you are not don't have distractions, entertainments, and all that. Your worries, anxieties, fears come up. Sides of yourself come up that you don't want to face. And yet, it's essential to be alone with yourself. Because the key to the path is knowing yourself. To know reality is to know yourself. There's no way to get to know reality, the divine, except through yourself. And in all traditions have uh, one way or another of saying this. In Hinduism, they say, that thou art. Meaning that that is the ultimate reality, the Brahman. You are that. So the only way you can find out what that is, is to find out who you truly are. And that means to delve into yourself. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. Delve into yourself. That's where you'll find the kingdom of God. The Buddhas say your own self-nature is the Buddha. Your self-nature is the Buddha. There's no other Buddha. There's no Buddha out there in the sky or whatever. So the, the doorway to the reality, to the ultimate reality, to the divine, to God, is through yourself. And in order to get to, the, to your true self, you have to pass through all the things you think you are. The, your desires, your aversions, your attachments, all the things that, are, uh, that create this illusion of being a personal self. And you can only get to know them by looking at them. And a lot of people start on a spiritual path and they start with the idea they're going to get rid of their desires, their aversions, their fears, their attachments. I'm going to get rid of all this and then I'm going to be a saint. It's not a question of getting rid of. It's a question of observing and observing until you yourself see that at root, the, the root of this desire, the root of this aversion, the root of this attachment is unreal. There's no basis for it. And when you see that, it, it starts to vanish of its own. It just starts to dissolve. There's nothing there to, to hold it. Here's what Trungpa says, this Tibetan teacher I talked about earlier. The problem is that we tend to seek an easy and painless answer. But this kind of solution does not apply to the spiritual path. Once we commit ourselves to the spiritual path, it is very painful and we are in for it. We have committed ourselves to the pain of exposing ourselves, of taking off our clothes, our skin, (coughs) nerves, heart, brains, until we are exposed to the universe. Nothing will be left. It will be terrible, excruciating, but that's the way it is. (laughs) (laughs) that's what a spiritual path is about I I titled my book Naked Through the Gate because it's all about getting naked getting absolutely naked and this brings us to the next fear that spiritual seekers, most spiritual seekers will have to confront and that's the fear of uh, commitment that is the fear of commitment and Murchi Iliade, a great uh, scholar of uh, comparative religions, sums it up this way, but this would apply to any uh, spiritual tradition. Man's ambivalent attitude towards the sacred can be explained by man's natural reactions to this transcendent reality which attracts and terrifies him with equal intensity. Resistance is most clearly expressed when man is faced with a total demand from the sacred. When he is called upon to make the supreme decision either to give himself over completely and irrevocably to sacred things or to continue in an uncertain attitude towards them. Somewhere along the spiritual path, you know, we go, we dabble, uh, we try a little meditation, we try a little precepts, then we have our problems in our other, in our life, you know, and we start choosing, well, how much time do I want to put into all this spiritual stuff and not and back and forth? Somewhere along the line, though, it comes to a question of really making a commitment. Are you really going to give yourself to this to this practice, to this path? Or are you going to continue to be a dilettante and dabble with it? Uh, sometimes this sense of commitment isn't all at once. Sometimes you have to make a chunk of the commitment. So you go that far, and then you go a little farther, and you go, Oh, well, but there's more to this than that, and there's another chunk to be made. But uh, there'll be quite definite points in your life where you will have to make a decision, a conscious decision. At the very least, the spiritual path at some point in your life has to become the priority of your life. The priority of your life simply means that you start to reorganize your life around the spiritual path. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to be like the Buddha and give up uh, your family and go off and become an external renunciate. But it means that if your job is interfering with your spiritual practice, you change jobs. If your lifestyle is interfering with your spiritual practice, you change lifestyles. If uh, you have to go someplace, be near a teacher or whatever, then you go. As I say, this usually happens at various stages, but you will be tested. These will come up, there'll be specific tests. And in my own, I use my own life as a, to give you just two examples. There are probably three or four major times where I had to make a decision. Now, wait a minute. This I've gone this far, and I know that to go farther is a, a really big step here. Uh, one was I had a dream when I was a very young man that I'd almost forgotten about. That uh, when I'm in my early twenties, that had predicted my life up until the time I was 39. And when I started going on the spiritual path, I remembered the dream and I started to write it down. And I suddenly realized this is impossible. Everything that this dream has was said has come true. And th- this violated all my uh, scientific understandings of the world, my worldview. This couldn't be, and I suddenly felt this real, you know, spooky, weird feeling here. And let me read you what I uh, what I wrote about it. As the import of this revelation deepened, the revelation that this dream had predicted my my whole life. I closed my eyes and knew myself to be standing at the most decisive crossroads of my life. I could simply choose to forget I had ever had this dream, forget Athena and her sword, forget Samantha Jones, forget my quest and never again ask a single question about who I was or what was truth or reality or destiny or, by inquiring into the, to the dream further and accepting all the consequences of its implications, have the whole current of my existence wrenched from its old habitual stream bed and sent spilling out into a vast inconceivable unknown. It was a moment where I knew that I was standing at this crossroads, that this thing had happened, and I had a choice. I could just say, forget it, you know. They're just... You know, take a sleeping pill, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, go back to work, and just forget all this nonsense, the spiritual path, everything. What was that, the occupation slash taking off crossroad that you had in the book? Excuse me? What was the path, what was the crossroad between you staying oh. in Hollywood and. Oh, it wasn't specific at that oh. point. Oh. This was early. I just oh, I knew see. that now, if I started to pursue this, it was really radically going to change. I had, this is again, I didn't know, like Lolly Schwartz standing there, you know? Not knowing. Uh, now, here's another one. This is later in my journey, when I had decided to leave Hollywood. The spiritual path had become a priority in my life. I, for me, could not continue to pursue it in the occupation I had. And so, I had decided to leave Hollywood and make a little trip, of This uh, taking a video camera with me and visiting all these spiritual communities. Originally, I had conceived of this trip as marking a definite termination of my old life. But slowly, slyly, my thinking began to change. Instead of a clean break with the past, I started to view it as nothing more than a long summer vacation, a well-deserved breather from the ten years of steady career building. This shift in perspective was so subtle I almost didn't notice it. Almost. In point of fact, I trained myself too well to be t- seduced by such mental gymnastics. It was clearly motivated by a dread, not so much of losing any specific possessions, but of living without any plans or prospects for the future, of surrendering all sense of physical security. As I move closer to this abyss of the unknown, my mind filled with dire scenarios of deprivation, sickness, and death. (laughs) So here's an example of having made a decision to do something, a commitment, and then only discovering afterwards... What the fear was. It wasn't, you know, then after I made it, I started to think, oh my gosh, am I really going to do this? Am I going to leave Hollywood and how I'll make a living? And I start, you know, the mind is wonderful. The mind's the greatest artist in the world. they projected pictures of me lying in the gutter in the rain and people passing me by and dying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could happen, but, you know. Uh, so here again, this is a fear. These aren't fears of anything, at least, that was eminently physically threatening but these inner fears that are produced from inside that your own ego throws up and produces. Uh, And this takes courage to deal with, and you have to recognize them and face them squarely. This brings us to the fear of suffering. This is what I was afraid of. If I left Hollywood, I was going to experience all this suffering. Here's what... Bear with me. Igju Garjuk, a caribou Eskimo shaman, says about this. True wisdom is only to be found far away from people, out in the great solitude, and it is not found in play, but only through suffering. Solitude and suffering open the human mind, and therefore a shaman must seek seek his wisdom there. are a lot of people uh, think the spiritual path is going to be an immediate escape from suffering, because this is what all mystics say. Ultimately, what the spiritual path is about is to become free of suffering. That's what liberation, moksha, means. That's what in Buddhism, emancipation means. That's what Jesus said when he said, Know the truth and it will make you free, free from sin and its consequences, which are suffering and death. But it doesn't mean to uh, you're immediately going to be free of suffering. To be really free of suffering, you have to go to the root of suffering. And again, this is part of facing reality. In order to understand, you become free of suffering by understanding suffering. In order to understand suffering, you have to examine suffering. You have to observe suffering. What suffering? Other people suffering? No, your own suffering. So suffering becomes your most valuable teacher we don't need to uh take on a bunch of ascetic practices normally to do this this is the the purpose of ascetic practices by the way you read about some of these saints and mystics who have you know uh, gone up and sat on the timberline uh you know with a loincloth in the freezing weather or sat on burning rocks in the in the blazing sun or you know these sorts of practices Uh, Satomi, a Japanese woman whose autobiography is in the library. One of the things she used to do is in the winter throw buckets of cold water over herself. These are forms of physical ascetic practices. There are other, uh, practices that aren't, it's not so much the physical import, but the emotional import. Saint Francis writes about he was revolted by lepers. And so, of course, what did he do? He took upon himself to serve lepers. And through this practice, he said, by facing his revulsion of lepers and so forth, he said, God transformed this revulsion into the sweetest joy. So it is a perfect example of facing your fear, facing your revulsion, facing that part of reality that you don't want to face. But generally speaking, we don't usually have to go out of our way. Life presents us with opportunities for practicing watching suffering all the time. All we have to do is stop running away. And it's best to start with little things. You know, you mentioned building confidence. uh, Courage is a lack of confidence. On a spiritual path, it's very important to build confidence. To start, if you're going to start a meditation practice and it's difficult for you, start with five minutes a day. Don't try to do 40 minutes a day. You build confidence. Yoga, I can sit five minutes a day. Well, the next thing you'll be able to sit 10 minutes a day and so forth. You know, the same is true here. You want to face suffering? Next time you go to a restaurant uh, and it's closed and you're really looking forward to eating that Italian meal or something, there's a little bit of suffering there. And it's valuable for you. Look into it. What's, what's the cause of suffering? Well, there's this desire. Well, what was at the, the root of the desire? Well, there's an attachment here. You look into it. And then you can graduate from that to, you know, trip to the dentist. You know, you, you gotta go, I don't know, some people are get very nervous about going to the dentist. They, once it's on the calendar and the date starts getting close, you know, they start uh, a week in advance, they start thinking, Oh God, next Thursday, I gotta go to the dentist. Here's a wonderful opportunity to practice this. Okay. There's the fear. You look into it. What, what are you afraid of? What's going to happen to the dentist? Physical pain. All right. If that, if it narrows down to that, when you're in the dentist's office, watch physical pain. Take that as your meditation. But then there's a, uh, another form of spiritual, of, of, suffering on a spiritual path, uh, that is not experienced by, um, worldly people. These forms of suffering are all experienced by worldly people. The restaurant's closed, going to the dentist, uh, you have a disappointment at work or trouble in a relationship or whatever. But you, as as Trunkbus said, you go on a spiritual path, you're in for it. You're in for it. And this is what usually happens, again, for most people. They go on a spiritual path. They start really getting serious about their practice. They make a commitment. They start doing this practice. And as their old world starts to uh, become less rigid, uh, as the old boundaries start to dissolve a little bit, as they enter the unknown, they start to get glimpses of that divine reality. Maybe in meditation, beautiful, blissful experiences. Uh, maybe if they're following a bhakti path, a path of devotion, a real sense of the presence of the divine, the presence of God in your life, of guidance, of joy, and so forth. And for almost everybody, uh, there comes a point, just when you've become attached to all these, what are called in the West, spiritual consolations, just when you start to... Uh, Uh, look at your spiritual path as a way to get these consolations, these new kinds of spiritual goodies instead of the worldly goodies, uh, they'll evaporate for you. They'll dry up for you. Here's how Mirabai uh, describes it. She's singing to Krishna. For your sake, I abandoned the world and my family. Why do you now forget me? You lit the fire of the pain of absence, but you have not returned to put it out. My boat has shuddered in mid sea and is now at a standstill. No peace by day, no sleep by night. I stand ever in expectation and am withering away. The arrow of absence has pierced my heart, and I cannot forget thee for a moment. That's a wonderful line about her. Her ship is. Let's uh, see uh, how she said it again here. Shuddered, mid sea. And come to a standstill. Well, is probably- yes, that's exactly right. She set out from port. <coughs> She's now out on the open sea. She's been sailing along. She's been getting great weather, you know, nice gusty, uh, <sighs> breezes, been beautiful sunsets and magnificent dolphins and all that stuff, you know, we, you know, and then suddenly the doldrum set in. But calm. The wind dries up. The sky gets leaden. It's no longer beautiful tropical weather. It's that heavy, leaden, moist, uh, sticky, ooky, right? The fog comes in. You can't see where you're going. You know, and and it's too late now. If you made the commitment. By the way, if this happens to you too soon, you'll just rush back to port. You know, <laughs> but you're stuck. You can't go forward, and you can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. And so you're, uh, you no longer take any, uh, joy or satisfaction in your old worldly pleasures in life. And yet you're, you're not getting these spiritual goodies that you've become attached to and accustomed to. Saint John of the Cross called this the dark night of the soul. He actually distinguishes two dark nights, but this particular, the first one is this that comes about midway. I mean, more or less on a spiritual journey. There may be several of them, by the way. You may go on, then the wind picks up and the clouds uh, clear away again, more constellations, and boom, you stop again, dead water. And so uh, this is really disconcerting because now what this is doing is showing you your attachments and your desire for the subtle realm forms, which are still masks of the ultimate formless divine, the absolute Often this is described as a desert experience. Dr. Wolf, one of my teachers, described, he said there was one, only one dangerous time he ever felt on his spiritual path, where he had no more interest in the things of this world, and he didn't feel any attraction to pursue the spiritual path. And so he just felt for, and I don't know how long a period it lasted, but he felt like every day he had to force himself to get up to eat and dress himself and do the things. Otherwise, he would just stop and die. And it was just he had to use willpower to keep going, and then, of course, uh, the attraction of the divine picked up and started to pull him along again. So don't be surprised now, and uh, this is interesting, because I know some people around here have been going through this sort of thing recently, and they're always so surprised, and they're really kind of heartbroken and crushed, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And yet, you see, we, how easily we forget. We read the biographies of these mystics. When, when you read my book, and there were periods in my book when this happened, I talked about uh, Athena, who was this guiding, uh, uh, subtle realm guiding figure that I, that uh, was with me most of the time. She would quit, uh, giving me guidance, uh, and nothing was happening in meditation, and all that. And I'd go out to a bar and I'd get drunk and, you know, try and flirt and all that. And it didn't work anymore. I didn't enjoy getting drunk. I didn't enjoy flirting. I mean, it just, you know, the old old things I used to love to do. just no more pleasure. What's <laughs> oh, so funny? The old things I love to do, give out and flirt and get... Oh, I did. I was, I was, I was a party animal. <laughs> no, you change. Your life is going to change. Things are going to change for you. Believe Desert me. Desert experience. How would you describe the opportunity there? You know, you talk about ah, the time. opportunity is to look at your attachments right. uh, to so, these uh, these spiritual <laughs> consolations, which are always experiences, and as experiences, they're always impermanent, and they'll always pass. There's no permanent happiness, even in the most uh, sublime spiritual experiences. There is no permanent happiness to be found. There is no spiritual state that you can enter and stay there permanently. All states are impermanent. If you go into samadhi for 40 years... <laughs> you know eventually it will run out and you'll come crashing back so it's that security thing again yes you're looking for a new form of security a new form of of pleasure now it's spiritual pleasures you know so the the lesson here is just that you have to let go of that too you know this is radical all attachments even the spiritual things I also found it, sure. um, in the desert experience that it was the ego kind of saying that I'm doing this. I'm in control of this. And when the desert experience happens, ah, you really see this. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're yes. Oh, the ego's. Very, let's take a moment here to talk about this because it's very interesting. You watch the ego on a spiritual path. Often, the ego in the beginning has a tremendous amount of resistance. And it shows up in things like, Oh, you don't want to meditate now. Come on. You want to go to a party or something. That's why it showed up with me anyway, you know. Uh, and you start meditating for a while. Oh, it's fun in the beginning. It's new, you know, but then after a while, this is pretty boring. Uh, sitting there every day for half an hour watching your breath, you know, and the ego, then the ego starts getting saying, this isn't getting you anywhere. And, you know, maybe you should go read a book, you know, <laughs> something. But, and then more serious, uh, little <laughs> misadvice from the ego. But at some point, the ego then will jump on board and say, oh, yes. Oh, especially when it hears about you are the divine. You know what I mean? That thou art, you are God. Well, the ego says, okay, let's go, you know. <laughs> and uh and and really gets behind the practice, builds up pride. Now you can meditate, you know, you're meditating three times a day, half an hour, you can sit without moving at all, you know. Uh you go on retreat, everybody admires your style and this and that. You know? <laughs> I mean the ego can really get off on a spiritual practice. I'm serious. <laughs> It thinks it's in control. You you pinpoint exactly right, you know, and then and and it also you even uh you can learn to command uh, some of these experiences, you know, through meditation. So you know how to get back to that bliss experience quite easily for a while, and then boom, nothing works, and the ego is left out there, you know, <laughs> dangling with. There's nothing it can do. There's nothing it can do. That's part of what the spiritual path is teaching you. Ultimately. There is no ego, but along the way what you find out is that you, the ego thinks it's in control of these things. The ego has never been in control of anything from the get-go. And this just shows you this truth, you know? It just isn't. And this then brings up again for a lot of people, for instance, maybe a deeper level of commitment here, as Murchi Iliadi talked about, you know? The total demand to give up everything to the divine, do you know what I mean? To stop relying on your ego at all. With, even in a, in a situation where there's no carrot dangling out, you know what I mean, for the ego to grab onto, you know, just let it go. Here's what Lali Shori says: If you have the courage to persist through these periods, you must bear the lightning and the thunder along the path. You have to endure the difficulties in the dark midnight of sadhana. It will be like being crushed to powder between grinding stones. But if you can endure it, O Lolly, God will come looking for you, and happiness and contentment will welcome you home. If you can endure it, that's this kind of courage. Here is not a courage to act so much, where there is no action to do. It's just the courage, the courage to be, to be present, to be there. That's all. Simone Weil has a, a beautiful line about this. Uh, it requires, the path requires, ultimately, really, and this is all it requires in any situation, but in this case it becomes very clear because there's nothing else to do. Attention, immobility, and waiting through suffering and joy. That's it. Just staying, staying with it. This starts to now get more like uh, persistence and patience is another virtue. All these virtues are interlinked here, but just the courage to even be there when when there is no divine presence. What about the word surrender? Is it somehow kind of tied to this? That, uh, that word is used. you know. Yes, but uh, I'm, I'm not using it here because surrender is not something you actually can do. Mm-hmm. So that's the ego thinks, so, oh, I'm going to surrender. Right. Oh, oh, that's all I have. I just have to surrender. Fine. I'll just surrender. Then there's a false kind of surrender mm-hmm. where you think you're surrendering and then you're flooded with all these consolations. But then when you're in a dry period, you say, oh, I'm going to surrender. I surrender. Nothing. You know, <laughs> I surrender. You know? Right. It's so like sur- pumping for the water and then suddenly it's not coming. You pumping away. That's not true surrender. Right. Okay. So, uh, now, this brings us up to the next to the last one, this, uh, the fear of suffering, overcoming the fear of suffering, the mundane kinds of suffering and spiritual suffering. And as Lali Shwari says, if you can endure this, God will come looking for you. Now, that sounds like good news, but when <laughs> God comes looking for you, it ain't always good news. <laughs> there is known in all the traditions, and this is quite mysterious to people, the fear of God, the fear of the Absolute. Uh, and Catherine of Siena, uh, who's a Christian mystic, she distinguishes two kinds of fears of God, one of which we're very familiar with in a, in a uh, Christian culture anyway, even if you're not Christian, you hear it on the radio and stuff, the fundamentalist fear of God. The ordinary fear of God is the fear of punishment. That, uh, you're afraid of God because you've been bad and God's gonna punish you and, you know, you're going to hell and all that. So you, you shape up and you start, you know, uh, following Ten Commandments because you're afraid you're gonna go to hell. That's the mundane, ordinary fear of God. The mystic's fear of God is a holy fear of God. And what is the holy fear of God about? Well, it has to do with a little bit of this quality of surrender. You might get some sense of this if you've ever been fallen madly in love with somebody that you don't know that well, and there's a sense of a little bit of fear of letting this happen, this relationship developed, you know what I mean? Giving yourself over to a lover. And there's a, especially this romantic love, falling in love, there's a wild, unpredictable quality. And you know, you could get hurt, especially if you're, when you're a teenager, you just do it, usually. But as you get older, you get a little more cautious about it. You know what I mean? This is a taste of what this holy fear is. This is this demand. Yes, there's this, uh, uh, in, particularly in the Western terms, the love of God, the divine love, the divine, presence that is full of love that demands unconditional love, total love. And that demand raises fear. And it's very much connected with this love. Here's what uh, Gershom Sholem uh, says about the uh, Jewish Hasidic tradition. In its sublimest manifestations, pure fear of God is identical with love and devotion for him not from a need for protection against the demons or from fear of temptation, but because in this mystical state, a flood of joy enters the soul and sweeps away every trace of mundane and egotistical feeling. So this is also related to this fear of God, which is also... The other side of the coin of the love of God, devotion to God, is also related to this egolessness, this selflessness, this fear that if I really give in to this love, this total unconditional love, that is getting very close to the ultimate letting go of ego here. And there's one quick story which I've told before from the Tibetan tradition where they don't have any sense of uh, this love of God and all that. That's not part of their vocabulary. But Sankapa, who was a great Tibetan master, was explaining to a room full of monks uh, the doctrine of selflessness. For the umpteenth time, and all these monks had heard this hundreds of times before, they all (laughs) understood it intellectually, and they're all sitting around, and suddenly one monk grabs his pillow like this, and Sankapa notices him and says, Ah, now you're beginning to understand. The sign of his understanding, the sign that his understanding was penetrating more than just at the intellect, was his fear. So it has to do with this, uh, uh, this, when you, when you really begin to experience selflessness, uh, it often generates fear, and fear is often, from the teacher's point of view, a great sign, as it was for Tsangkapa. It says, ah, finally one of my students is getting it. The student itself may not feel at the moment <laughs> that it's such a great sign. Um, and then this brings us finally this fear of selflessness to the final fear, that must be confronted uh, on a spiritual path that takes tremendous courage, and that is the fear of physical death. And because the fear of physical death and the fear of selflessness, which is really the fear of enlightenment, oddly enough, are almost identical, almost identical. Uh, the reason that we fear physical death is because that is that uh, gets to the root sense of that we actually are somebody and when we are afraid of physical death that that sense of identity we know now not just in imaginary sense and all that but here in in every aspect of existence the mental the emotional the physical it's that's going to dissolve and so uh the fear of physical death brings up this fear of selflessness perhaps like nothing else this is why jesus said For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but who loses his life for my sake will save it. For my sake, meaning the sake of the truth. We can take Jesus as the word here. This willingness, literally willingness to die, that doesn't mean your willingness to die means you're going to run out and die, but it's facing the fact that in biologic form you are going to die, and it's giving up all resistance to that reality all resistance to that reality you are going to die and so that's this complete acceptance of biological death and that is a, uh, absolutely necessary to face that at some point before uh, before you can really face the fact there is no self period this is how Eddie Hillesom uh, who I mentioned before again comes to terms with uh, in her life with physical death here's how she describes it by coming to terms with life, I mean the reality of death has become a definite part of my life. My life has, so to speak, been extended by death, by my looking death in the eye and accepting it, by accepting destruction as part of life, and no longer wasting my energies on fear or on fear of death or the refusal to acknowledge its inevitability. It sounds paradoxical. By excluding death from our life, we cannot have a full life. And by admitting death into our life, we enlarge and enrich it. This has been my first real confrontation with death. I never knew what to make of it before. I had such a virginal attitude towards it. I never delved deeply into the question. There was no need for that. And now death has come as large as life, and I greet him as an old acquaintance. Everything is so simple. You don't have to have any profound thoughts on the subject. There, death suddenly stands, largest life and part of it. Now, let's take this for a moment. Let's notice some of this sounds like uh, stuff you'll read in, in good books, New Age kinds of books about, you know, coping with life and death and so forth. Remember, she's writing from a concentration camp at this, uh, at this point, or she's almost on her way to a concentration camp. To be able to say that in this situation, and that's what you want to look at, it's one thing we're sitting around here in this nice, comfortable room, and to be able to say, oh, yes, I can recognize death as a part of life and so forth. But to really be faced with physical death and to really come to grips with it the way she did, because she is looking at the Nazis and she realizes she's almost 100% certain she's going to end up dead in a concentration camp. So she's really faced it not as a romantic future sort of possibility and all that. The second thing to notice about this, very important, she talks about um, this has been my first real confrontation with death. I never knew what to make of it before. I had such a virginal attitude towards it. I never delved deeply into the question. And this is what a spiritual path says. Delve deeply into the question. Delve deeply. Don't just sit for one afternoon for a half an hour and think, oh, yes, now what's my attitude about death? Oh, I can accept death and go on about your business. That's extremely superficial. Most traditions have formal practices that encourage you to contemplate your own death in one form or another. Uh, the Tibetans have very powerful practices. Where you uh, visualize your body, uh, and this is in deep meditation, you visualize your body as a sacrifice to demons, and they come along and they chop it up and they chop off your skull, and then they put the rest of your body, and then all the demons in the universe come and gobble it up and so forth, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have milder practices, which are very good compassionate practices, but involve this. It's, it's sending and taking. And they're practices where you imagine uh, the suffering of other people, somebody with cancer or so forth, and you take on all their suffering and you, give, uh, you send them life and joy. The part about taking on their suffering is very important here. It's really to feel that, to be willing to take on their suffering. And there's several people in our group who have done this. and uh, You know, it sounds fine. And suddenly they they get to the practice and it raises fear in them. This is good. I'm not, you know, this, this that if somebody sits down the first time and does this practice, oh, it was so beautiful. I just gave, I took all the suffering on, I gave it out. I think, I, I wonder how strongly this practice is, you know, really seeping in. But if somebody comes back and says, I'm having a horrible time with this practice, I say, oh, very interesting. Well, keep looking at it. This is a question of really penetrating. Uh, Hindus, uh, uh, take a Shiva or Kali, contemplate kind of Shiva or Kali in their fierce aspects. You know, they're the destroyers. Kali is this goddess who has scimitars and she's strung with necklaces of skulls and so forth. You know, this is again a, w- a way through a meditative practice facing an archetype of facing this destruction. Uh Christians in the Catholic Church, uh, an Episcopal church where I grew up, if you go to any Catholic church, you'll find around the walls of the church, they'll have the stations of the cross. And there are, I don't know what, there are 12 or 20 little <laughs> pictures of Jesus' execution, the stages that he we went through, getting scourged, carrying the cross, falling, being picked up, being nailed, hung up there. The whole point of this is to, when you walk the stations of the cross, to identify with Jesus, to put yourself in His place, to understand what He went through, to really experience it and feel it. It's very much like the Tibetan practices of descending and taking, of suffering, and also the the practices of uh, sacrifice. And the, the Jesus on the cross is that's what it is. That is saying, you know, this is the destiny of the physical body. And the, the message, the mythic archetypal message of Jesus' sacrifice, it was totally willing sacrifice. Like Eddie Hosom, accept it. Willingness to die. That's very different from being suicidal here. I hope nobody misunderstands that. A willingness to die means a facing reality. Being suicidal in 99% of the time is trying to escape reality. If you take this practice, uh, in a profound enough way of contemplating your own death, it can actually take you immediately to enlightenment. And there is a shining example of this, and that is Ramana Maharshi, who is a great uh, mystic, one of the great mystics of this century. And he talks about how his enlightenment came about. For those of you who don't know any of his story, a quick background. He was a young Hindu boy. He was, uh, grew up, he was interested in sports. He wasn't too, he was, I guess, smart enough, but he wasn't too interested in schoolwork. Typical sort of, you know, Um, ordinary Hindu kid. And when he was about 16, he was staying with his uncle. He says, I was sitting alone in a room on the first floor of my uncle's house. I seldom had any sickness. And on that day, there was nothing wrong with my health. But a sudden, violent fear of death overtook me. I just felt I'm going to die and began thinking what to do about it. Now, let's stop there. Have any of you ever had... uh, a sudden, a sudden violent fear of death, sort of. That, how many people have had that experience? Yeah, well, I think most people have had that sometime in their life. Now, but now, so you can you can relate to what he's talking about here. There's nothing. This wasn't uh, something unusual, but look the difference of what he does with it in this situation. So he says, "Here I am. I'm going to die, and I began thinking what to do about it." It did not occur to me to consult the doctor or my elders or friends. I felt that I had to solve the problem myself there and then. You see, right away, he's accepting this. He's turning into the fear. He's looking at it in terms of something to inquire into rather than something to run away from and, and fix. Do something about it. Get rid of this somehow the shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards and I said to myself mentally, now death has come. What does it mean? What is it that is dying? This body dies. And and at once I dramatized the occurrence of death. I lay with my limbs stretched out stiff as though rigor mortis had set in and imitated a corpse so as to give greater reality to the inquiry. Boy, he's... He's entering into the experience completely. Look how shamanic this is. This is what shamanic initiation uh, rites are all about. Dying and putting yourself in these extreme positions. This is a a uh, Tibetan visualization uh, here of death. This is visualizing yourself on the cross. You see, I'm just trying to show how the, all these pointing to the same thing. But he really takes it seriously. He goes into it. So there he is. Instead of running away, he's actually going to delve in as far as deep as he can, because he wants to find out what is this, what's at the bottom of it. Well, then I said to myself, this body is dead. It will be carried stiff to the burning ground and there burnt and reduced to ashes. But with the death of this body, am I dead? The body dies, but the spirit that transcended cannot be touched by death. That means I am the deathless spirit. And then he goes on, all this was not dull thought. It flashed through me vividly, as vividly as living truth, which I perceive directly, almost without thought processes. So he's not talking about, he's 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 giving you this in words, because he has to, but this is not a philosophical sort of inquiry. He's looking into the experience, right? And when he perceives that he, even though the body dies and all that, who he is, he says it's this direct, immediate uh, living truth. It's not a question of, oh, I figured it out through speculation. From that moment onwards, the I, or self, focused attention on itself by a powerful fascination. Fear of death had vanished once and for all. Absorption in the self, and now it's with a big S, the ultimate self, continued unbroken from that time on. Other thoughts might come and go, like the various notes of music, but the I continued, like the fundamental shooting note that underlies and blends with all other notes. So here's an example of a a person uh, who took the fear of physical death itself as the practice, and he had only one secret. (coughs) Tremendous courage. Tremendous (coughs) courage going right into it, right through it, right to the heart of it, and realizing that he was not the body. He was not all the things that we think we are. And when the body vanishes, and the thoughts vanish, and the emotions vanish, and all that, what's left is that deathless spirit. The great Tao, God, Brahman, Allah, whatever name any tradition wants to give it, doesn't matter. So, these are some of the things that you are going to have to face on a spiritual path, one way or another, in one form or another. Some people, uh, commitment will be a much bigger problem, but fear, of, but suffering won't be, or whatever. It's different for different people, and it's different times, and they're not things that most people do once and for all. You overcome, as I say, you, you're, the journey deepens. And so you pass through one stage of dealing with fears and you think, oh, that's over with. And then suddenly, boom, it comes up again. But if you observe closely, it'll be at a deeper stage. The path is a spiral. And you can think of it, it keeps crossing the same stream over and over, but it keeps crossing it closer to the source if you're, uh, if you're really doing your path correctly. Let me just end by giving you a few little uh, tips on how actually to practice courage, pr- pr- practical tips. One is remember this business: that courage is not being stupid. This is very important. So there, you may find yourself in a in a practice that uh, uh, that you sense intuitively is dangerous for you at this time. You don't have to be uh, macho heroic and be stupid about it and go do some practice that is not you're not ready for. A uh, story of a woman that I knew who was a follower of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh she said that she was in Nepal or uh, someplace close to Tibet. And this Westerner showed up and insisted on in doing this, what they call, I think, dark night retreats or something. You go into a, a, literally a totally sealed black cave for 30 days. I guess they slip you some water and food in there. And uh, the lamas would not uh, give him any empowerment to do it. They all advised him against it. He insisted he went and did it. And they carried him off in a straitjacket. So don't be stupid. But you do have to be willing to take risks in the face of the unknown. The whole life is like this anyway. That's the reality reality of life, but on a spiritual path particularly. I describe one someplace in my book, at one point I felt like I was going up this staircase at night with no railing on the side, feeling my way up along the wall and not knowing where it's going. And in those situations, you have to, uh, you have to proceed. You have to proceed. You can proceed slowly with caution if you like, or you can just stay where you are for a while until you're ready to go on. But don't run back and run back to port. Or you're never gonna, you'll you, you keep bumping up the same obstacle. It cannot be gotten around. It has to be gotten through. Um, notice that, uh, when fear arises, remember what I said about fear being your ally. Do not take the attitude, oh, here's fear. I've got to get rid of it. This is bad. I shouldn't be feeling fear because I'm a spiritual practitioner and this isn't saintly or whatever. It's so totally the wrong attitude to take. That fear is the cue for your inquiry. When the fear is there, say, oh, good. Thank you, fear. Now, what should I look at? What am I afraid of here? What am I really afraid of? What are my desires? What is my attachment?" And you can ask ultimately the question Ramana asked, Ramana Maharshi asked, who is afraid here? Yes, there's fear, there's thoughts, there's, uh, uh, the maybe visual perception of a situation, there's the dentist drill, you know, coming at me. But is there any I in all this? Is there any me in all this? Look into that. Make that inquiry. Three. Guard against the ego's rationalizations. And I read you that little uh, section about, uh, uh, from my journey where I decided to leave Hollywood and go on this video trip and then the ego starts, uh, out of fear, starts coming in and saying, well, you don't have to really go that far, you know, and you can, it can be just a nice summer trip and all that. All that is what? It's about relieving fear. It's about trying to protect me from fear. But I didn't want to be protected from fear. I wanted to confront the fear of the true insecurity of the world. You don't necessarily have to leave your job, as I said, or your life or whatever. You may or you may not. This is totally uh, determined by your own individual path, your own individual destiny and so forth. But you will have to, somewhere along the line, confront the fears that keep you uh, uh, wherever you are. So most people are not, wherever they are, they're not there freely. They're there because they've their fear has guided them into a little channel, a little path. So whether you actually physically leave it or not, to confront what you are afraid of is what's important. Uh, Watch the mind that says, yes, but. Whenever you read a mystical teaching, like here's one, a good one from Jesus. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then the ego mind says... Yes, but he doesn't really mean that I have to give up my house. Yes, he does. You might not have to physically give up your house. You might not have to externally give up your house. But you have to give up the attachment to the house. You have to give it up. Why? I mean, this is not a moral thing you have to give it if you're a bad boy. You have to give it up because you're going to lose the house. You are going to lose the house. If it doesn't burn down uh before you die or whatever... When you die, it's going to be taken away from you. You can look at the whole spiritual path as about uh giving up these attachments now uh, and then experiencing the joy and freedom of, of living without attachments or wait until you die, and then they'll, they'll all be taken from you anyway. And so the Tibetans say, you know, why not? It's all going to be taken from you when you die. Why not just give it up all now and be free of it? They don't have to be free of the worries about what's going to happen and all that. Why not be free of all that fear? See fear as an ally. When that you start to get afraid of something, instead of being afraid of the fear, notice how clear the mind becomes. Notice that there's energy in the body and so forth. You can use that for meditation. You can use that for your inquiry. There'll be a lot less distracting thoughts. The thoughts that will come up are the thoughts that will lead you directly to what you're afraid of and to what you're attached to. Oh, my God, the the plane is shaking. Look at that fuselage. It's going to come apart any minute. Oh, oh, well, right there. What a beautiful time to do inquiry. Okay, so it comes apart, just like Ramana Maharshi. Okay, so what happens? This body will fly through the air. You know, you can, right there. If you were in a plane that you think is about to crash, wonderful time to do this inquiry. If you're a beginner, I'd suggest you get a death prayer and maybe not try the inquiry. (laughs) But if you're more advanced in the path, try the inquiry. So, uh, don't dismiss these teachings that sound so radical, like Jesus is about, you have to forsake everything. Don't dismiss them as just exaggeration. They are there, they are true. The more radical the teaching, the more literally true it is. And then that's just, that's a guidance for you to say, okay, fine. So if this path means I have to give up everything, well, what next? What do I really not want to give up? And examine it. Now, I say, give up, maybe you actually have to physically give it up in, an, in order to understand the depth of your attachment. But in many cases, we don't. In many cases, we can understand the depth of the attachment uh, through imagination, through that sort of practice, or finding little ways to experiment, put ourselves in positions where we, we're close to it or whatever. You have to find that out for yourself. And then finally, let me say this, on a positive side. Take, take the spiritual path as an adventure. Walk it in the spirit of adventure. It is the greatest adventure there is. It's greater than all the discoveries Columbus ever made. It's greater than going to the moon or being an astronaut or anything. It is the single greatest adventure any human being can undertake, and every human being can undertake it. Every human being cannot be an astronaut, but you can be a spiritual astronaut, if you like. It's been a rather long morning. Why don't we bring the formal part to a close, and you're welcome to stay and have tea, and by all means, if you're new here, check out the library. Check with Jennifer before you take a book, because you do have to become a member, and she'll show you how to do that, and um, peace to you all.